Um, I want to say a few things about some of the current events that we see happening in the States this past week, um, in you know, particular the killings that have happened, um, and uh, it's heartbreaking. Um, it's easy for us to say that that's an American thing that's happening uh, down there, um, but it's not an American problem. Uh, it's a human problem. Um, and uh, that, that problem here is also, uh, that problem is also a Canadian problem as well. And this week I, I did some research and listened to a couple of uh, just um, uh, pundits and just listening to how, you know, we were reacting to all that was going on and realizing that I don't think we quite get like the underlying issue of why these things happen. And not that I claim to know like why all this stuff is happening, but uh, I'm also not so ignorant to, to think that like, you know, here in Canada that we don't deal with similar issues. Maybe they don't have the same kind of like manifestations, you know. But we, which, by the way, in the last few years, we have seen a rise in unarmed people getting shot um, by police. But the point here is not about police or, or, or anything like that. Uh, but I thought it'd be interesting for us to know that, um, you know, we're here in Canada, we think that's easy, that's a state's problem, and I'm American too, so I mean, I, I, can, I can tend to be like, oh, you know, that's happening in my home country. Um, but I don't know if you realize that uh, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the government put out a study uh, a year and a half ago um, out of the correctional, uh, oh boy, what's the department called? I forget. I uh, put out a study uh, uh, that over the last 10 years that uh, black Canadians um, being incarcerated has risen 70%, uh, whereas aboriginals have risen 46% and whites have declined by 3%. Um, the amount of um, uh, the black population in Canada is 2.9%. The amount of blacks uh, in prison make up over 10% of the prison population. 27% of people that are randomly carted by police are, are 27% black, uh, where again, 2.9% of the population is black. So I, I'm not, I'm not state, stating this to, to say, hey, Canada, we're just as bad as the United States. That's... <laughs> That's not the point of what I'm, I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is that um, this is not a, an American problem. This is not a, a Canadian problem. Uh, this is a human problem. Um, and uh, there is a, 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 a lawyer who wrote a piece in the Toronto Star last year about the problem of black incarceration in Canada. He says this, I think we have a quote. He says, the truth of the matter is that when you look in our prison system, if you go to our courthouses, if you go to our children's aides offices to school detention halls, it is overwhelmingly black kids who are being criminalized and punished. I think the generalized science has to do with what we want to believe about ourselves as Canadians. And hear me, this is not an American trying to guilt trip you as Canadians, okay? <laughs> that's not the point. So if that's how it's coming across, that's not the point at all. What I, what I want us to understand is that uh, we all have blinders. Like we all have our biases, we all have our prejudices. I'm not calling anybody racist, but we all have this. This is not an American-Canadian issue. This is a human problem. And this is a human problem that Jesus came to solve. And that's why this matters to the church, right? Jesus gave his life, it says in Ephesians chapter three, so that he would tear down the wall of hostility so that by his blood, that he would form one new man from two. All right, you understand that? Like this is the problem that Jesus came to solve. 
And it's, it, for me, it's not good enough that we just, you know, you, you know, you have your token Asian friend or your token white friend or your token black friend. Like, that's, that's, not, the, that's not the solution that Jesus came to give. He, he came to give his life so that we would become one man. I don't, the church is Jesus' solution to societal ills. Rehabilitation and reconciliation, the Bible says, ultimately is found in what Jesus has done on the cross, and it's expressed through the church, right? And so I want us to understand that church, like it's, as you look at the headlines and as you're reading these things, and it's easy to kind of say, oh, it's happening over there, or, or you know, this is something that's, you know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, rooted in something that uh, is, you know, a, a political, social justice issue. No, it's a human heart issue. Right. And the only person that has dealt with that completely is Jesus Christ on the cross. And so just like Israel, when we've been studying the development of the nation of Israel, just like Israel was placed strategically in the spot of the world where it can be a light to the world, I sometimes think that the church in Toronto, we are in the world's most diverse city. You realize that, right? So some of you guys who grew up in the city, you don't realize how diverse the city is until you go, you know, two hours north of here. You're like, oh, wow, Toronto's like a completely different nation, com- completely different country, right? You, you don't realize, we, Toronto is such a, a, a unique city. And I feel like the church in Toronto, we have a chance to shine bright in our modern world, just as Israel had a chance to shine bright in the ancient world. But we have to make this decision. Like, we have to, you can't just, these just can't be headlines and news lines for us, right? You can't just ignore these stats and just say, well, it's because, and he, hear me, okay, um, I grew up in all-black neighborhoods, so you, I hear this all the time. It's just because black people commit more crime or those kinds of things, right? You have to ask the question, are we a part, is there a systemic issue, right? And so, um, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think what I'm trying to say is that we need to be convinced. We need to be convinced that we have something that is so unique and real that Jesus came to give. That um, if we don't offer that to a society, then all they will ever do is provide uh, political or social responses. When, when the reality is that only Jesus can fix the problem that's, that's found in here, right? And so I want to encourage us as a church to uh, seek that out in whatever way that God is revealing to you. And I think for us, I mean, we are a multicultural church. Um, we didn't, you don't really try hard to be that in Toronto. You just are, right? Um, but there are next levels in our relationships that we need to take with one another, uh, you know, uh, if you're very new to this, maybe you just need to start eating other kinds of foods, right? Uh, but if you're a pro and you're advanced and you have very many different relationships in your life, there's still next levels in which you work towards reconciliation and giving yourself for the other person so that the other person can feel more accepted and more welcomed, right? This, again, this is not a black and police issue, all right? Uh, the news wants to frame it that way. It's not, you know, so it has not, I mean, it has, that's a symptom. This is a people-to-people issue. This is a heart problem. And so we are, we're dealing with long-standing spiritual curses of our forefathers. Like, do you understand that, right? The, 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 the manifestations of our problems that we see today are long-standing problems with our forefathers, 
that we continue to struggle with today, right? But every nation has their people group that they ostracize. Every group, right? All right. And us Asians, we're not, we're not innocent of this, okay? All right. Most of us came from countries that committed genocide, all right? So there is not one people group that is innocent from this. But the fact remains is that there's only one prayer that we can pray as a church that can bring about what, uh, what we're seeking for. And, and, and Jesus prayed it himself. And he said, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I, I want to encourage us to keep praying that for um, uh, not just, you know, uh, uh, you know, the headlines that we're seeing on TV, but pray that for our church that our church would become a kingdom reflection of what God wants uh, on earth because it really, we are the culture makers of the kingdom of God. It's a heavy responsibility. You are the, cultural, the culture maker of the kingdom of God in Toronto. That is our responsibility to bring that culture to, to God. So today I want to talk about uh, influence. I want to talk about the influence of the church and the importance of that and your individual influence that you have, that God has given you as an individual person. You have power. Some of you guys, you don't feel like you have power. You feel weak in your circumstance. You don't feel like you have choices to make. You feel like you're just kind of like, you know, going through your day, and you don't feel like you actually have influence over other people. But the fact remains is that every time you're in a relationship with somebody, you, whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you think, that has some kind of influence over other people. You have power in other people's lives. And in your humility, in your humility, God wants to use that influence to change your circumstances, right? He doesn't want us to just read headlines and shake our heads and say, that's too bad. He wants to use your influence, your power, in a humble way to change the circumstance around you, right? It's the worst thing that we can do is to read a headline and say, oh, that's too bad. Tis, 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 right? It's the worst thing what we can do today is talk about it and me preach about it and us walk away later and say, that's, you know, that was great. You know, I hope that happens. God has given you specific influence, right? Uh, I'm going to try to have some real moments today because I, I feel really, uh, it doesn't seem like I'm passionate about this, but I'm really, God has given you something that nobody else has in the relationships that you have, in the circumstances that you're in, that you can do, you can bring change about. Only you can do that. But you have to be humble. You have to be humble. If you're not humble, you're going to shy away from it because you're too good to work on that small problem that's going on. Or you're going to shy away from it because you think you're too small and you don't have enough influence or power. You have to stay humble. And the story of David, the one that we just read this morning, is about how God used the humble king to influence the kingdom, right? So uh, at this point of the, the, the Bible that we're kind of trucking along, uh, you get to a point where Israel is finally formed as a nation. Uh, they went from a family of 70 to a people group, and now they're actually a nation. They have land now. They're like big boys. They're not this like, you know, little minor league uh, nation anymore. They actually have a nation, but they are kingless, and so God wanted to be their king. God wanted to, to, to lead them. He always had intended to give them a human king, but for a season, he wanted their faithfulness to be towards him, not some human leader. So God had always intended that eventually he would give them the king when the right person came along. 
And if you're interested in this stuff, the book of Ruth is not a Mother's Day book. The book of Ruth is about setting the scene for the right person, King David, all right? Uh, and so, um, uh, uh, but if you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 17, God gives some qualifications for who will be his king. And these are just some of the attributes. For instance, uh, this king, he must not acquire many horses for himself, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. All right? Like, what does that mean to, to us? Right? The, the king that will lead Israel, basically, he, uh, uh, God is saying this, he's not going to have a lot of bling. All right? Uh, he shouldn't be driving a Bentley. Uh, yeah. uh, not that there's anything wrong with a Bentley. Uh, uh, definitely he shouldn't have a lot of wives. That one's pretty literal, okay? <laughs> uh, in a sense, this guy should be pretty humble, all right? He has to be pretty modest. He has to be somebody that we can point to and, and say, you know what, he's not about himself, all right? That's God's candidate for uh, power and influence. And then he gives another uh, attribute, in the following verse, it says, he, the king, uh, and remember, this is written several, uh, several generations b- before King David arrives on the scene. He may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and, uh, and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers. So this king, he's going to love and cherish God's word so that he won't uh, feel above other people, right? He's going to remain humble. He's going to become an expert in the scripture, not so he would have intellectual knowledge more than other people, but so that this can work its way through his heart and he can remain humble. God wanted to give Israel a humble servant king. That was the kind of power and influence he wanted his people to have throughout the known world at the time. The problem was that the ancient world thought that was a wussy king, all right? If that king represented us, he's a wuss. Because everybody wanted a powerful king, and so did Israel. So guess what Israel did? Instead of waiting on God, they decided to choose their own king, this guy named Saul, who was a big bad dude, but didn't fit this criteria. And they lived to regret that, situ- uh, that situation. Here's a free one for us. This is not the point of our sermon today, but I thought I was writing this stuff down. I bet it, you'd know that it's better for us to wait for God to work out his will than for us to make hurried decisions that for sometimes it will take years to undo. And so Israel didn't wait. They were hurried in their decision, so they picked pick their candidate, and the criteria is completely different from God's. Instead of getting a humble servant king, they got an arrogant tyrant, right? And they lived to regret that quite a bit. And by the way, influence can never be forced onto people. Um, whenever you're forcing your influence onto people, you're authoritarian, and we saw a lot of that in King Saul's life. So David was actually God's choice king, not Saul. David wasn't a perfect king. If you know anything about David's life, uh, he had many flaws, which included adultery and murder, all right? But here's our hope when you hear that. Is despite those two, two things that were a part of his life, what made him what the Bible calls the man after God's own heart was that even in the midst of his brokenness, he always turned towards God and not away from God. There was a temptation that in his brokenness and in his sinfulness that he was going to turn away from God, but in his humility, he always turned towards God in repentance and humility, and that's why God was able to give him influence and power. 
That was the tone that God was setting for God's king throughout the nation, right? So um, 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, where, we, where we're at today, this is actually a turning point in the Bible, right? We've been preaching through several turning points. You've got Adam, the fall. You have Abraham. You have Moses, David, and his covenant with God is another turning point in the Bible, because this is, now God has his choice king in place. Saul's out of the picture. God has his way now. David has a good run as a king. Um, he, they're a legit nation. They're not warring anymore. Things are going well. And David sits back and he's just kind of posturing himself and thinking, what do I do now? And he's thinking, man, I need to, I need to work for the purposes of God. I, I, my success is God's uh, grace, and so I need to do something for God. And so he starts thinking, I'm going to build a temple for God. That's where, so people can worship God, right? And so he had great intentions. See, God, David had a heart for God. He had great intentions. He wanted to build God a temple so that people could worship him there. But then God says to him, no, not yet, and not you. David had good intentions. He was going to do something great for God, but God says, no, not yet, not you. It's not that God didn't want a temple, because you see that uh, after David, uh, Solomon actually builds a temple. But it's the fact that God wanted to seize this moment, right? He's, having, he's building a relationship with David. David says, I want to do something good with you, for you. And then God wants to seize this moment with David to teach us something about God's nature. God is saying, no, not yet, not you. Because I want to show you that I am more gracious than you thought. David, you want to do something for me? I want to do something for you. You want to build me a house? I want to build you a dynasty. God is gracious to us more than we could ever imagine. Um, I'm going to line up there. Every other religion says divine blessings are achieved when you build something for God. The God of the Bible says divine blessings are received when God does something for you. It's a big difference between Christianity and other religions, right? Other religions say you achieve things when you do things for God. God wanted to prove a point with David and for all of us. No, you receive blessings when I do something for you. You want to build me a house? No, I'll build you a, a dynasty. And God wanted David to understand that because he wanted Israel to know that they had a different kind of God. They had a different kind of God. In a sense, God was acting like a father to David. I have inheritance for you, David. As a matter of fact, um, in this next verse, uh, he actually calls David his prince, right? And so let's look at this passage, uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, the following, uh, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. David wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. As a matter of fact, he was a shepherd boy. Uh, this was his proving ground. He wasn't born like into royalty. As a shepherd, this is where he proved his character. Whenever God wants to use you to influence other people, he rarely, rarely, rarely starts you in a place of influence. There's always a proving ground, right? Why would God want you to do something in public that you don't yet do in private? Being a shepherd, being faithful, being strong was David's proving ground. If you've ever thought, man, my time is here. I need, to, I need to arise in my career. I need to arise in my relationship. I need to, if that's where you're at, remind yourself that you may be in a season where you're in a proving ground. Why would God thrust you in the spotlight when you're still struggling to do these things 
in private, right? Um, I've got a, a little uh, illustration here for us. Everybody is a pizza fan, yes, no? All right. Uh, Lord, bless this and multiply it uh, to feed us all. No, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, this is the pizza, and my kids are salivating over this. Uh, Jojo said, Dad, I want first dibs after your sermon. I said, sure. Okay, all right. So, um, you know, power is like pizza. Yeah. Agree? <laughs> um, you, you, you can only really have one slice at a time, right? Now, now, most people, if you're like me, when you see a pizza like this, you're like, yeah, I'm going to eat all of it. Like <laughs> a slice, that, I mean, that, you know, that's not going to do it, right? So you're already thinking, I want the whole thing, right? And to most people, power and influence is very much like that. When they think about my ability to influence, my ability to, to have power and, and change things, we're thinking, I want the whole pizza. I want to do everything, right? And the reality is that what you, I mean, that's not how it works. Like you get a slice, like, you get one slice of it, and it, I'm going to need a napkin, and it doesn't make sense that I give you another slice until you've actually eaten this one, All right? Like, if you're, you're halfway eating this one, and you're saying, oh, no, like, I, 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 this isn't enough for me. Give me the whole pizza. I'm going to look at you. I'm like, hey, hey, come on, big mouth. Hold on, Finish your slice. You see, all of us, we have a level of influence. We have a level of power. And it doesn't make sense for God to give us more if we're squandering the slice that's been given to us. If the peace that we have, we're not, we're not using to its full potential. It's not that God is mean. It's not that God doesn't believe in you. It's not that God doesn't think that you can do big things. It's that he's waiting for you to eat the slice that's in front of you. Very few people become famous, right? Yeah, this is what I don't like about how we treat children. Uh, you say, oh, you can be whoever you want to be. You can be famous. You can become the next prime minister, blah, 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 stuff like that, right? Very few people will become that. Everybody gets a slice, though. And you have to decide what you're going to do with your slice. Do you let it sit and get cold, or do you consume it, right? Um, maybe God will give you more. Maybe, but that's his prerogative. Just be glad that you got your slice. I'm the kind of person where I'm like, I'm, I look at other people's slices and I'm like, man, but they have pepperoni and sausage. Uh, all you vegans are kind of like, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and, and so I get like jealous and I'm just like, God, I can do more. God's like, no, you, I've given you a slice. I don't want you to get overweight. I don't want you to be overstressed. I don't want you to have financial burden. Isn't it okay that the life that I've chosen for you is good enough for you? Isn't there enough there for you to influence the people that have put you in, uh, in their lives already? Why do you want to influence the 15 people over there when there's three already around you? God's giving you a slice, right? In God's kingdom, uh, in his economics, more is not equated with better. And that's the way that our worldly value system teaches us. We have to get into our, our minds that in God's kingdom economics, more is not necessarily better. More is a matter of stewardship. 
the person who struggles with their self-worth because they don't have as much as other people, as much material goods, as much influence, that person misunderstands God's concept of grace. I understand, I misunderstand God's concept of grace if I don't feel like as worthy as the one who has more than me. All right. Later, remember, David says that, uh, God says to David that, I took you from the pasture. Like, that's where you're from. I took you from there, right? Then he later says that, I will cut off your enemies. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for Israel. I will give you rest. I will establish your throne. God's in charge of the increase. You're in charge of the slice. David's job was to eat a slice, to feed the sheep take care of the sheep. God's job was to give him increase in influence. That's how influence works in the kingdom of God. You don't achieve it for yourself. You're faithful to the little, Jesus says, and that he will give you influence over cities. You realize that's what Jesus says to his disciples? Before Jesus goes to the cross, he says to his disciples, if you're faithful with the little, I will give you charge over cities. You will influence cities if you're faithful to the little things in front of you. So don't waste influence that God's given you. He's given it to you for a very, very real reason. Let's look at another verse um, and uh, talk about where the influence is actually leading to. This is actually in verses 12 through 14. It says, when your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to uh, David again, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. After David, there were several kings that came after him. They were all, some of them were really shady, bad, terrible kings. They rejected God. They actually worshiped idols. And so, um, but this was a lineage that God was creating from David. And what he's actually saying here in this passage is this. I'm establishing a dynasty, but also there's going to come a better king. That the dynasty points to a better king. David, your dynasty points to your influence points to, your power points to a better David, a better king. Remember last week when I said this? I said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the Old Testament, oh sorry, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Remember I said that last week? Say, read that with me, just because I think it's kind of a tongue twister. <laughs> Ready, let's sing. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. This passage here is concealing something about God that in the New Testament we find out what it's concealing. And it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, the Hebrews writer is writing this about Jesus, and he quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he's talking about how Samuel is saying, whenever Samuel was saying this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, that this was actually talking about Jesus himself. When God is promising to King David a dynasty, he's actually promising to David the fact that he's going to send his son, the true humble servant king. And the Hebrews writer 
reveals what the Old Testament was concealing in Christ Jesus. David's kingdom actually points to Jesus. Jesus is a better David. Jesus is a better king because Jesus was a faithful son. Jesus was a humble prince. And David was Jesus' shadow. God intended on planning or establishing the kingdom on earth by sending not rulers and not, um, you know, uh, magistrates. He intended to establish his culture of justice and righteousness and peace and love, not through these military means, but through his son, Jesus, so that he would give his life for his people. You know, we, you and I, we know that the way, to, the way to have power in the workplace is to work hard, right? The way to get influence is to work hard. Um, the world says that you gain power by ruling over people. That's how you gain power. The Bible says that Jesus gained power by giving his life for people. It's an upside-down concept. Many of the military regimes said that the way that you influence the world is that you rule over people with authority. And Jesus is not so with God's kingdom. The way that I'm doing it is I'm going to give my life for it. Now, when we make Jesus our king, when you and I make Jesus our king, Jesus gives us so much more than we could ever expect. But what you find out, and what many of you new believers are finding out, is that when you make Jesus your king, you give him much more than you ever expected. Don't you find that the more you grow in your faith, you end up giving to Jesus more? Has, has that been your experience? The three of us? Okay, wow. <laughs> the more you grow in your love and relationship with Jesus, the, you realize that you have to give up more. You're giving up more time, more finances, more, you know, uh, more preferences, right? Why, 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 does, why, is that, why is that part of the Christian life? It's important that you realize that you are giving up more. Just like David is the shadow of Jesus. David is the shadow of Jesus. Jesus is the shadow of the church. Jesus is the shadow of you. Jesus is a prototype of who we are to be. His pattern for living was meant for you to live, was meant for me to live. The constant giving, the more devoted we are to God, you feel like you're constantly giving. That's the pattern that God's established in our life. That's the humble way to have influence. We don't, we don't, we don't say to the city, hey, we wanna, have, we wanna sit at your table and we wanna make decisions with you, no. I think what we're trying to do as a church is we're saying, what are the worst things that you guys don't want to do that you can let us do if it would serve you? That's the, that's the pathway of Jesus for influence, right? We are made like him in every way. Uh, Paul affirms this, right? Remember, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? And then in 2 Corinthians verse 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 6, 16 and 18, Paul quotes about 2 Samuel, what he quotes about 2 Samuel. He's now referring that to us, the church, right? What Hebrews quoted about 2 Samuel referred to Jesus. Paul's now quoting that same exact verse, and he's saying, that's the church. We are the temple of the living God, as God said, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons, and he's progressive, sons and daughters to me. What Jesus is, we are in the form of a community. 
who Jesus is, the church is supposed to be. The Old Testament is the New Testament revealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament concealed, or sorry, vice versa. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Jesus is the church concealed. The church is Jesus revealed. There's a weight of responsibility and influence that we carry as a church. Church is not about coming to a Sunday morning service to, get, to listen to some nice songs or to listen to a sermon. We have a responsibility that Jesus carried. There's a weight that we carry with being a part of the body of Christ that Jesus carried himself, that now it belongs to us, right? Just as Jesus gave his life for the world, we as a church, we're called to do the same. We're called to sacrifice for our world, for our city. The vision of Trinity Life is that we would discover our identity and destiny in Christ. That's not self-help talk, okay? We're not saying, I feel better about myself. Oh, you're a great person. You ever watch Saturday Night Live and you watch Stuart? Stuart's looking in the mirror, he says, I like you, you're a great person. Have you ever seen the sketch? It's back in the early 90s, okay, maybe I'm the only one who's old enough to remember that. Okay, Stuart would look in the mirror and he would say, oh, you're, you're a great person, I like you, right? The, our, our vision statement is not a self-help statement. <clears throat> Discovering our identity and destiny in Christ. When you find that you're in Christ, you find that you're dead in Christ, you find that you're alive in Christ. The pattern of Christ's life becomes your pattern. How Jesus gained influence in the world is how you will gain influence in the world. The second half of our statement says we uh, discover identity and destiny in Christ so that we would influence the city and the world. How did Jesus influence the world? By giving his life for the world. How will our church influence the world? By sacrificing and giving ourselves up for our city and the world. Humble, servant. That's how we influence. That's our power. It's very subversive. It's not demanding. It's not coercive. But it takes a lot of energy. It takes you. It takes this slice. It takes you being serious about the slice that you've been given. C.S. Lewis, he understood this. Like, I mean, I don't know. It was a mind, it was a, what did they call it when your mind goes, like that? Mind, mind blo- yeah, yeah, my mind was blown. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. Maybe you haven't thought about this statement yet, and maybe I didn't accentuate. We, Jesus, all right, and you may think I'm heretical for saying this, all right? Jesus is the church concealed. In Jesus was a mystery that God had since the beginning of time that God had always wanted to have a people, the church. It took Jesus to reveal that. We're not talking about Israel anymore. Israel was a slice of the people. It took Jesus to reveal that. When you see the church, you see the fullness of who Jesus is. It's like Jesus on steroids. He would never take steroids, uh, but if he did, he would look like the church. Do you understand this? This is the book of Acts, by the way. Uh, the last statement in the church is Jesus revealed is just the book of Acts. 
Why were Christians called Christians in the first place in the city of Antioch? Because they act like little Christs. Christian just means little Christ. The church is Jesus revealed to the world. You just got, you got, you got to let that sit. When I think about this, like it, it, it melts my mind because like to think that God thought about us long before this ever happened, like long before this book was ever written, that God already had this plan, that he was going to reveal his master dream project, which was the church, and he was going to combine it with his begotten son, Jesus, and he was going to make them come together, and this is how he was going to bring his kingdom to the world. Like, it's mind-blowing that God had always had us in mind. It's not, he, Jesus didn't die to give us worship services. He so that we would have the influence of God on this earth. And some people get this idea. C.S. Lewis understood it uh, when he wrote uh, the Narnia series. And I'm not geeky. I'm not that geeky. I didn't read all the books. I just saw the movies, okay? All right, so I'm, I'm totally the Cliff Notes kind of person. Um, but uh, if you've seen Prince Caspian, he was crowned the king of Narnia. And this is in the book. This is not actually in the movie. But Aslan is having this conversation with Prince Caspian, right? And so Aslan says, welcome, Prince. Do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? I, I don't think so, sir, said Caspian. I'm only a kid. Good, said Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been a proof that you were not. I've never heard anybody say that Prince Caspian and Edward and Lucy and Susan and Peter was the church. I've never heard anybody say that, okay? But if Aslan is the Christ figure, and if Narnia is the kingdom, then who is Caspian? Who is Edward? Who is Peter? Who is Lucy? Who is Susan? They're the servant rulers. They're the new kings and queens of Narnia. They're the church. And so are you. When Jesus came, he said a few things. He says, I've come to proclaim the good news to the poor. I've came to bring liberty to the captives, to give sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, heal the sick, raise the dead. Jesus was doing that as a prototype because he wanted to show the church, that's your job. That's our job. And I can only pray this morning that we feel the weight of that in light of some of the stuff that we talked about early on in the service and in light of your, your vocation and in light of the, the accolades that we're pursuing for ourselves, that you would feel the weight that everything that we do as a person who is a follower of Jesus fits into these categories of preaching the good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, the Lord's favor, healing the sick, raising the dead. It doesn't matter if you're an engineer or a preacher. This is all of our jobs. This is our job description as a church. And I'm praying this morning that we would hear God's voice as a church and that we would trust it. And that when you look at your slice, that you wouldn't be disappointed with the, the level of influence that God's given you, that you would consume it, that you would be faithful to the slice that's in front of you. Because that's the only way that we can be the church that God's called us to be here in Toronto.